Sarah Laurie back in 2019. It was a it was a different time. It was a simpler time. Uh, but at the M2 Summit, you helped us through the process of dealing with anxiety. Did you know that the world was going to go a little bit nuts a year later? Oh, wow. I mean, if you could have said that this is what's going to happen, for me, it would have been, it would have just, no, there's no way we could have forecast that that was going to happen. But that said, I feel like we were already in a very, very poor state back then. This is not anything new. It's definitely amplified. There's definitely a big lens on it now. um, And it's got a lot of relevance. Um, And we all get it. But, you know, this, this problem was always there. And it's not going anywhere. Not until we're not till we're done, anyway. <laughs> that's an that's an interesting point. I never really thought about it like that. But like the reaction, so there's a there's a whole lot of stuff that's been happening. Obviously, we've got global pandemic. Then you've got yes. this kind of social rupture that's working its way through the United States and is is um, yep. coming here as well. Uh, but is that all? So is that all linked to this kind of rising anxiety that is that is part of? The way oh, we are. I, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think there's many contributing factors. And when you actually look at what anxiety is, it's a physical human state caused by fear. And that's kind of it at its most raw. And so it, we say it's caused by fear and it's caused by uncertainty. When a human's in an uncertain state, we trigger a stress response. And so whether it's whatever's going on in the States, as you refer, the social ruptures that we that we discuss, there are many, many facets to what is um, making all of us feel uncertain at the moment. And, and I think that's one of the things that's been quite fascinating about this piece of work is that every one of us will have a different reason or a different experience of this. And... To, uh, as, and at the same time, every one of us has a very common response. And I think that was kind of where that led us to start doing our work around stress and the human brain. Because we, the way we started looking at it was, wow, look at some of these high risk sectors, for example, farming and law, wildly different in terms of, of how they exist and what their pressures are, but very common in terms of what their sort of that kind of experience of stress and anxiety and even worse is so that's probably a little bit of a long way of answering it but um yeah we've got lots of things going on but one single thing that is causing this to the human body if we look at uh again we'll, we'll kind of look at the early part of this year and lockdown and that because mm-hmm. that was it was certainly a whole lot of craziness and anxiety and uncertainty. And I'm not too proud to admit that I did a little bit of stockpiling. Um, mm-hmm. We had uh, not probably the still toilet got, paper. I probably still got <laughs> some left over toilet paper. Um, but but how did you how did you cope throughout that process? Look, I'm probably not the best person to ask because people might be thinking, "Oh, great, let's get some strategy around how I coped." Because I I I do have a bit of a a kind of a relaxed, not maybe relaxed is the wrong word, but I've got this trusted sense that things will be okay. And I, and I guess I've come to that because I've been through some very hard things in my life. And um, you just end up learning that here we are breathing in and out and we're still okay. So whilst it happened, 
I mean, my husband and I are both self-employed. We couldn't work. We couldn't earn. We're kind of paid by the hours that we spend. Literally, there's nothing digital about what we do. Um, so we had to go, okay, right, well, let's just hunker down um, and trust, which probably sounds a little bit lame, but... You know, we did that. We we made we made do. And my personal experience was one of um, ease, actually, despite all those pressures. I enjoyed my family, my younger family, to being forced to home to live with us um, because there was nowhere else. I I enjoyed quiet on the roads. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed things, but. That's a good question, and I'm sorry I probably haven't articulated that answer that well. But you know, it can be something that we learn is what is the worst case scenario, and can we deal with that? And when we kind of reconcile that maybe we can deal with that worst case scenario, it kind of makes stepping out how we handle the days and the weeks ahead a little bit less um, confronting, perhaps. Yeah, and this is, I think this is an unprecedented, obviously unprecedented, it's one of those one of those words uh, yes. from 2020, but it's so, so, so hard to kind of wrap your head around uh, mm. the scale of this. But do you think that sometimes we can be our own worst enemies mentally in terms of uh, the story that we create, the narrative that we create about the yes. worst case scenario, as you say? Yes. It's interesting as you ask this question, because my brain is already going to what happens in the human brain when we get ourselves in these sorts of positions. So, what, I mean, one of the things I love, and I, and I hope I don't sound too excited about it, because it's like we're talking about something that's very challenging for people, but I've become really fascinated with, you know, the impact on how we think and feel and what's going on in our brain. And what we know is that when a person is in a pressure state and their stress response is engaged, we have a different kind of thinking that is designed to occur. So when we're under pressure and when we're in a, in a stressed state, our thinking is supposed to be risk averse, cautious, defensive, and we do become much more hyped up because we're in a danger state. So we, we actually can find it unless we actively manufacture constructive, positive thoughts. We find ourselves having these kind of concerned, worried thoughts, which are already really valid. But there's a second side to that, which is really interesting, is that your brain seeks patterns. Mm. And so when your brain seeks a pattern in anything that you think or say or do, it automates those patterns. So when we see the pandemic that we're in currently and what it does to people in terms of their frame of mind, um, as you ask, we're kind of Without realizing it, yes, we're kind of our own worst enemy because these thoughts start happening there for a reason and then they become automated. So we have those thoughts continually and then there's this kind of perpetual cycle around us feeling worried and concerned and down. Yeah, and, and over time, and some of us might be experiencing that, it actually alters our outlook on life. So, yeah, we, we can be our own worst enemy, but I think what, what the opportunity is, is to, is to literally unravel it and understand it as wiring in our brain and kind of if we can almost separate from it and go, wow, so that's the wiring that's occurring with that thought pattern. I better just unravel that and set my wiring on a new way. We can look at it quite mechanically, if you like, mm. um, and it starts to make a difference. But I think, you know, to, you know, to your point, you know, 
don't you and I love media? We love media and storytelling and, in the, and the opportunity that we have in media. But I've been a little bit disappointed seeing some of the reporting in our, I'm sure you're aware of the sorts of media I'm referring to, that are scaring us and always mm. putting worst case scenarios and all these what ifs in our mind that they're just opinion based things, but they have us going, oh my gosh, you're right, what if? It's not real, but it's adding to that feed of um, the narrative in our, in our thinking. Yeah, and I, I was quite even surprised at myself. Like this has been a this year has been a very humbling experience for me. But I yes. thought I was I should be a sophisticated media consumer, but I was getting quite I was I was getting yep. kind of sucked up in the in the in the negative hype, and um and you know bank economists have started to rewrite things a little bit now mm -hmm. because things haven't quite fallen off a cliff the That's way that right. they were predicted to have done so. But That's it's right. so easy. I think it's so easy for those negative stories to become self-fulfilling prophecies in a way as well. Like when you well, I mean, yeah, that's right. It is. And it's like any story, really, when you again come back to that kind of wiring piece, you know, we tell ourselves a story enough, it becomes real. And that's literally just the patterns in our brain forming tracks. And then that's where the thoughts go. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting. Speaking of the speaking of the brain uh, wiring, and this might be a little bit of brain one hundred and one, but can we can we kind of touch on that a little bit? Like, what is the problem? Is it that the brain hasn't really evolved over the last thirty million years compared to say how we are living? You know, you mentioned lawyers and farmers. Like, yeah, back yeah. in the day, I mean, it, things would have been very basic in terms of what we had to deal with. Because yeah, that's right. I mean, it's an interesting question again. Um, and I think that almost to say, gosh, have our brains not evolved almost makes it sound like our, our physiology and our brains aren't up to the job. Um, and I know that's not what we mean here, but our, you're, you're right in that, you know, if we're going to be living in this pace and this way of life, can't our brain adapt and just keep up with us? Or should we actually look at the brain and say we've already got measures and mechanisms in place to manage this beautifully? The brain doesn't need to keep up because the brain was ahead of the game already with these things in place. So um, I, I know what you're saying. And, you know, and I, one of my kids has actually said to me, Mom, oh, my brain's different. Mine's way more evolved now because I'm 20. And I'm like, no, biology doesn't work like that. We don't evolve that quickly, buddy. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, if we, if we are to discuss that a little bit further, uh -uh, Andre, I'd say that we would observe that the brain is beautifully set up as it is and we just need to understand what that mechanism is mm. Mm. so what do you think okay so with that as a basis what yeah. are some of the things that we need to start changing so that sure. we can well like i think the first thing we need to understand i mean if we're if we're saying here yep we're, we're trying to understand anxiety and i think that's kind of what we're what we're doing is We've got to understand what an anxiety state is. And, and as we talked about, it becomes about from being in that stressed um, fight or flight state. And that's kind of the core of what, of what that mechanism is. And if you look at um, how everything in our body works, it's got this really amazing mechanism for it to flourish, if you like. So, for example, you get a new stomach lining every four days. You get a new liver every six weeks. You get new skin every 31 days. All these things happen because our brain and body 
are set up to keep us alive and thriving. And we have a mechanism in place that is designed to keep our brain in the state it's required to be in so that we don't take on these um, stressed states. And that's in the way we breathe. And when we can actually look at the way we breathe, I'm sorry if you can hear a helicopter flying over, because I hope that's not interrupting us. When you can recognize that the way we breathe almost have governance, has governance over our state of physiology, we start to have a bit more regard for it. Because I think to this point, people would have understood breathing to be something really nice and lovely and soft, like meditation or or yoga or Tai Chi, which is, they're all wonderful things, but breathing is is very robust and um, and it's kind of a mechanism that changes our state, which we need to um, have a bit more attention on, I think. So again, forgive me, because you'll probably roll your eyes when I start to kind of uh, break this down in terms that I can never. But is it about con- is it about kind of controlling that reptilian brain, the brain that thinks that can't yes. differentiate between a woolly mammoth yes. and work stress? It is. It's and it's about understanding. I mean, I think there's a couple of things here, and this is part of the mission for our work. Is that you know when we have these conversations around, okay, we all kind of have that. We all understand about the reptilian brain and the stress response and the fight or flight. And I think we touch on it a lot in courses that perhaps are run in the workplace and that sort of thing. And then we bring in the idea of breathing well and how that impacts that reptilian brain. But we've not yet joined the dots on the fact that it, there shouldn't be this mechanical. Okay, I'm in a stressed state. Let me breathe like I'm supposed to to not be in that stressed state. It is not supposed, the way we breathe isn't supposed to be an intervention or something that we just call on occasionally when in need. We are supposed to recognize that humans should breathe just naturally into their tummy every day while they work Mm. and they will be in a different physiological state. And when when a human breathes like that every day while they work, it's nothing fancy. It's just literally filling your lungs as we sit here now. When we do that, we won't be able to get into that stressed state. So it's massively a prevention. And it's also about knowing that that's just the way we should be all the time. It's not about drawing out of our toolbox on occasion, if that makes sense. Mm. As you were describing that, like breathing in, I, I, I became suddenly conscious that I wasn't doing that, that I probably uh, spent most of the day. Yes. Like, how common is it that we, that are most of us not breathing? Most of us, most of us. And it's funny that you should say that because obviously this is kind of my, it's the stuff I talk about all the time now. Every meeting I'm in, we're talking about the science of the way we breathe. And I recognize now the shift in people's faces as they're kind of listening intently and also at the same time realizing, how am I breathing? Am I breathing like this? Am I breathing like that? And so you're right to notice it. And your question around how many of us is unfortunately high. Mm. Well over 60% of us don't breathe like we're supposed to. Uh, Most of us shallow breathe, chest breathe, hold our breath to a degree. Um, And and that's really common. It's not a fault. It's it's very common. Um, But, you know, the other side of that, Andre, which I kind of think we can't ignore, is that 100% of people experiencing anxiety, experiencing anxiety, are breathing incorrectly. 
Now that's a massive statistic and it's really, really simple. If you just think, here's a person experiencing anxiety, here's the way they're breathing, we, we, we kind of need to unpack that. Mm. Um, and, and it is that simple, it is that simple. And I don't mean to say it's that simple, come on everybody, what's your problem? Because the problems are huge, they are unrelenting. And you know what? Not that I want to sound like the, the scaremongery media, but we'll get through this and there'll be other things. Life has shit in it, I'm sorry, that we could always be saying is going to cause us stress and anxiety, but that's life. So when we kind of get the state we should be in, I keep using that term, don't I, that when we get the state we should be in, uh, our physiological state, we might, well, I believe we will be starting to see a difference in those statistics. I want to touch on the on life and the shit that life has in it, um, mm. but, but we'll do that in a second. But can we can we just go back to the number of people that aren't breathing properly? And then you yeah. you were talking about the the levels of anxiety that are related mm. to not breathing properly. Yes. Can you extrapolate that? Wow, it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, you know, so when you say can I extrapolate that? Do you what, what do you mean? Like, well, go go. For, so what happens? What happens then? So so mm. if it comes from yeah. not breathing properly to high levels of anxiety, what yeah. actually happens when you amplify that out? What like yeah. when you're living with that constant kind of anxiety? Oh gosh! What, well, what let me just that? tell you something first before before we talk about that. That the the relationship between breathing and stress is so interconnected that one causes the other it's not always one before the other right. so if you think about again how it's designed for us if we're walking across the road and we're just breathing beautifully if that happens to be ours uh, the way we are we're crossing the road and a truck comes out of nowhere almost we turn and see it and involuntarily we take a massive breath of fright as we see it. So that's a physiological mechanism. That breath of fright that we take, we suck it into our chest, is an instruction to turn on our stress response. So on the one hand, you see that this chest breath has caused our stress response and that's made everything work to save our life. Our muscles are pumped, we race out of the way, that sort of thing. But the converse of that too is that as pressures mount, that also shifts our breathing. So say, for example, a young child, and we're seeing, we're seeing statistics in children as young as six that are experiencing anxiety, their lives are becoming more pressured or more rushed by whatever the, the things are. And that actually causes their breathing to, ch to change. So mm. there's a real interchange there between which causes what, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, one actually causes the other. And vice versa. That's frightening. Uh, I, I, we'll touch it on, we'll yes. touch on, yeah. on, on yeah. That, that age thing yeah. as well. But can yeah. you talk about what, what starts happening to your body? Like when you were, yeah, right. So what, what, what I love to almost kind of um, preface mm. this with is that what happens to our body is amazing because it is happening to our body because our body is designed so intricately to keep us safe. So when we are in this state, our as I explained to you, your stress response comes on in an instant, like a heat response if you touch something hot or a gag response if you start choking. Your body has a reaction that is designed to save you. And what that is, is that your blood pressure elevates, your heart rate elevates, your blood volume elevates, all that sort of stuff. And, and like I said, 
the way we think is designed to change in an instant as well so that we can be assessing for risk, um, being really cautious, imagining what other things might happen. So that happens. We have a state where we are now wired, hyper alert and almost ready for problems. Mm. And that's supposed to happen in a, in a, in a you know, dangerous situation because we need to be able to deal with that. At the same time, that that stress response engages. And this is, I think, why really, really fascinating for us when we're trying to get about our daily life or in the workplace, is that our frontal lobe, our executive systems and our frontal lobe dials right down. And that's supposed to happen as well, because mm. when you're in a danger state, you're not supposed to be able to problem solve or think critically or manage emotions or, or multiple tasks for that matter. Mm. So that's another wonderful mechanism that the human brain and body has to enable us to cope in those moments of danger. And you now fast forward to 21st century living like we're all in. And you can appreciate that that state is wonderful if we need it, but it is yeah. very, very challenging for us to live every day in that state. And it brings into question for most of us, I'm not coping. Why, do, why am I crying at the drop of a hat? Because our emotions are now being less able to manage. Why can't I remember things? Why am I sitting in this meeting feeling like I can't contribute because I can't problem solve? And, and these are all the sort of things, the sort of dialogue that we start to have quietly to ourselves and we try and fake it and keep going. But those are the sorts of mechanisms that are happening um, physiologically simply because of our stress and anxiety response. And actually, there's another side to it as well, which again makes sense, and that's that our other biological systems are dialed down in their function as well. For example, digestion or reproduction, mm. immunity. The, again, those things aren't necessary when we're in danger for our life, mm. but they're absolutely necessary to live a healthy, vital life. Um, I mean, it kind of explains, you know, when you get a knots in your tummy, when you're nervous and you sort of feel that you can, you can feel that. And that's precisely that. It's like your digestion is, is sort of messed with. So it's, there's a very, very physical physiological change that occurs and I think one of the things that I'm really really passionate about helping people understand is that the mechanisms themselves are really well designed and they're supposed to happen they just shouldn't be happening while we're living our everyday life so what we now need to do is understand, once again, what's the mechanism that we've got to mitigate that, to not allow ourselves to be in that state. And when you look to the answer being as simple as the way a human breathes, yeah. it almost sounds too simple, but, you know, it, it's phenomenal, um, the state that a human will be in when it breathes like it's designed to. Because mm. we're designed to. We're born breathing beautifully. It's interesting and um, fascinating in terms of the physiological uh, kind of mm. domino effect as well. And I, I can yep. imagine it starts creating a little bit of a stress loop too. So um, yep. if you're starting to, if the stress is starting to impact, say, uh, metabolism and uh, immunity yep. and yep. sleep, does it affect sleep as well? Then you're. Oh my gosh. I mean, I wish I had. We've got an amazing. Um, clinical team um, at Take a Breath and their work is very, very intricately linked. And the way a human breathes and their sleep is kind of 
I mean, I'm going to get the numbers wrong and I'll be told off afterwards, but 80% impacted. So, and I think this is probably potentially another thing for us to think about is, you know, we're often told if you want to reduce your stress, you've got to go and sleep better. So can you go and focus on getting better sleep? So we kind of get to bedtime and we think about, okay, right, what is my bedtime routine going to be? How am I going to change my sleep patterns to be more improved? But what we actually have to do instead is instead of looking at our patterns of sleep at night to improve them, we've got to look at our patterns during the day because it's the patterns, again, that a body's in during the day that are going to dictate how well it sleeps and stays asleep at nighttime. Kind of makes sense when you think about it, especially that idea around your brain automating what it sees most. So if we're really rushed and stressed all day long, your brain just goes along for the ride and it's keeping mm. you in that state and you will probably, and people might relate to this, fall asleep exhausted because your body is shattered, but it'll wake between two and three in the morning after about perhaps four or four hours sleep. And that's not enough. It's enough to survive, but that's what the stress response is about. It's not enough to thrive. Yeah. Speaking of thriving, mm -hmm. this might sound a little bit flippant, but have you have you dealt with people that have all, all of a sudden turned back on their frontal frontal lobe again, uh, got that executive decision-making happening, and they've, yeah. they've gone, oh, my God, I've made a whole lot of decisions, really big life decisions while I've been in the stress state. Who have I married? What have I, what oh, my I gosh, I know. Well, gosh, well, let's, let's see. The jury's probably out on that. We'll have to see after we come out of this, whatever we're in at the moment, to see that. But I'll tell you what I have observed, and it's probably not almost like the lightning bulb moment you want to hear, is that because obviously, well, not obviously, my work is around teaching the how stress and anxiety and the brain work and are linked to breathing. So I talk a lot about breathing all the time. I'm talking about the way a human breathes. And, and almost contrary to what you've described or asked is that people kind of realize accidentally, like we all reconvene after a number of weeks because changes do happen really, really quickly. And they're almost like, oh, yeah, no, now you tell me about it. I am feeling a bit more comfortable because people are developing social anxieties and discomfort at work. And they're kind of going, no, things are actually feeling better. Oh, do you think it could be my breathing? <laughs> it's like, mm, yeah, I do. So it's kind of, again, it's, it's quite an organic experience. Um, there, there'll be certain things that you notice quite quickly. You do quite quickly. I, I always describe it as you almost feel the edges coming off your nerves. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a very unscientific term. But I think we can probably relate to that feeling of just being so wired all the time, and we're just firing a little bit. And then when you take a breath, and you, and you re- focus on that situation, having taken a breath or a few breaths, the edges have gone. And so those are the sorts of things that you might notice straight away. But within days, you'll see a change in your sleep, you'll start to feel that people who have really been quick to irritate you, irritate you less, um, you feel calmer in the face of challenges that might have really quickly thrown you off. So um, but again, I'm, I'm probably repeating myself a bit here. It's not like this kind of light bulb moment going, oh my gosh, it was the breathing. It's just this kind of gentle realization that same stuff might be going on, but we feel differently. We feel differently as we're dealing with it. Yeah.
You mean a lot of your work is really, I guess you're, you're dealing with a lot of corporates, you're dealing with a, a lot of uh, people and having to retrain the way that they breathe or they think about breathing. Yeah. And you mentioned kids before. Is it, does it need to be like a, a thing that we do later on in life? Are there things that we can do for our kids that set them up? Oh my gosh, yes. And I mean, the funny, the funny thing about that, in a way, is that our kids can probably teach us. Mm. Because, you know, like, like I said, we're born breathing well. The, the mm. human physiology is amazing. So we're born breathing well, and we're born breathing the way that is designed to keep us healthy. And literally, that means our tummies, our lungs fill down. I'm sort of doing this, my, our, your lungs fill. So if you see a baby, you'll see their tummy rising if they're sleeping on their back. Um, so, and then you, you look at the way we breathe, we've become short in our breathing and we've become chest breathers. And if you, if you were to sit with your child and ask them to show you how to breathe, it'd be far more natural to them than to us because we've become in a pattern of our breathing over a lot of time that's quite hard to unravel. But it is urgent. In my view, it is urgent that we teach our children this again. And, and it's a shame that we have to teach them something that they knew beautifully right from the beginning without even having to think about it. But, you know, we do need to be right now talking to our children about what good breathing is and, show, and, and almost talking to them about how they do it so well and saying, look at your beautiful little tummy and how it's moving when you breathe. But I think it's also very timely to start explaining in, in whatever way we think is appropriate the science behind that. And we don't have to use those sorts of terms, but to explain that when we breathe into our tummy, we feel happier, our thoughts are more positive. Um, and, and the converse is when we don't do that, that can be why we feel angry or worried and, um, and, and explain that interchange. Um, on that note, one of the things that we're doing in, in the Take a Breath company is we're teaching this in schools. So every company that comes on board with the work that we're doing, a school gets it for free. So you're spot on. We've got a lot to be teaching all of us in, in New Zealand, um, and we need to be doing it right now. Mm. You mentioned the kind of the rising stress, stress levels in kids. What are some of the factors there? Are we, are we putting oh, too much pressure on? Look, I don't like to say that um, because I've got four kids who are now adults and I know that in the years we were raising kids, we are darn well doing everything we can to the best of our knowledge. So I really don't like that feeling of going, yes, we're doing it to our children. Mm. Um, it's, it's possibly not that it's that, but it is the environment that our children are in. And we are probably leading away the little bit with, a little bit with that. We are, we are moving too fast. We are putting pressure on our children. That shouldn't be the real pressure um, that they have right now um, and I, I mean I, I think we're all potentially um, reconsidering this at the moment anyway I, th I think some of the lockdowns and the, the periods of reflection that we've had in the last year have made us think about our priorities and what's important um, and I hope that's coming through but I think that children at their heart need to feel safe that, and, and I don't mean to say to sound dramatic and that our children need to feel that when they come to their homes, they're in a safe place and that they shouldn't be scared around, you've got to get your work done or you won't pass. Or if you don't be, be like this to your friends, you, they won't like you. We've got to 
let them learn and understand um, without feeling scared. Um, and I think I think that's contributing. But yeah, I, I think there's a number of factors there, Andre. Mm. Have you had a shift in priority this year? Have you? Um, do you know? Uh, I, I don't know, and I probably say, uh, yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. Um, it's not really a shift in priority because because of the line of work I'm in, like it, I've evolved into this breathing stress kind of space. But prior to that, I've been 15 years or so in the lifestyle, wellness, values, gratitude, all that sort of stuff. We've written some great books and certainly talked about it extensively. So I kind of do feel a bit like I've lived and breathed that. Um, what I could say is that I always put those things in place. Um, and as I've put them in place this year, I've realized how critical they are. It mm. is really critical that we understand what's important and think about it a lot. It's really critical that when things are being pulled away from us and, and ripped out from under us, that we have a sense of gratitude for what's left. Because, you know, those sorts of things change our perspective and then kind of by default loop back to impacting our stress response. So, um, I feel a little bit, um, I feel a little bit maybe like I'm being, in, not inauthentic, but I'm working damn hard at the moment and I love it. But, you know, my family might say, mum, how about take a break? If they, if they really thought, am I really living my priorities? I, I'm pretty sure I am. But, you know, we, we do have to slow down our pace. We have got to slow down our pace. And if, if lockdown taught us nothing, hopefully it taught us that, that I, I don't know about you, but you know, seeing families walking together down the street in the middle of the day and a lot of, not that I think it should be mums or dads, but I saw a lot more dads with families, which is just gold. And mm. and yes, we were thrown into it. And um, I, I hope it's helped us shift. It doesn't necessarily have to shift the balance of how we spend our time because we often can't. And I say that understanding that some families have got three jobs and, and they can't always um, do that. But just to know what your priorities are and have them top of mind can sometimes be enough to change how we feel about things. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So have, you, have you sensed that? Have you have you observed in those uh, that there has been that shift? Yes, I have. Um, and I, I definitely observed it. And I think there was a lot of conversation about it. And I, I almost felt a little bit of a sense of dread when we started going back to the traffic building up again and the pace just starting to, to creep back up. But I think um, what we would agree we've experienced is we've one of the things that's probably the biggest impact is the way of working. And, um, you know, we are now working from home with ease. Um, well, in some degrees, unless you've got young children that you're trying to school from home as well. But, you know, there's a lot of things that have perhaps changed accidentally because of what's happened this year that probably have led to people realising what's important and, and trying to, to slow down a bit. Um, so, yeah, I've definitely witnessed it and I've certainly heard conversation about it. And I guess we're just yet to see whether we go back to like it was. And, mm. and when I say that, I mean that crazy, awful pace that we're all too familiar with. Yeah. 
And then, you know, it's good to it's good to talk about the silver linings out of a time like this. But for for yeah. a lot of people, there's been some um, some real hardships, and, and that's right. Probably a lot more to come as well. Yes. Uh, do you? And I'll go back to that shit that you know you mentioned that within life, there's a, there's there's a whole yes. lot of shit, and that's that is part of life. And you mentioned um, before, you know, um, perhaps some of your perspective comes from. Uh, your history and, yeah. and the hardships that you've faced. Yes. Do you do you feel that as a society going through um, mm-hmm. you know some of some of what we've been going through this year will it make us a better society? Will it will it make us uh, you know deal with deal with things like if we if we went into another global pandemic would we be running around crazy with crazy loads of toilet paper and that kind of thing? Yeah. Will we have reached the new plane? No, we probably will. I mean, I hate to say it, but we probably will. And I think there's um, there are things like like we've talked about. We've talked about the media and that sort of thing that will always hype us up and put a lens of what might happen um, there for us. So I'd love to say that. Oh yes, the world is going to change, and we're all going to be away in a way. No, I don't want to say better place because we probably will be in a better place, but. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not. I'm not sure about that, Andre. I think um, you, you're right. As I heard you saying then, that there's been some real hardship for people. I think I want to. I want to say I. I get it too, and I. I feel a little bit guilty um, when I talk about some of the great things that have coming out of this this year. When there are people, families, businesses that are broken, so I, I don't say it lightly when I talk about some of the good things that that might come out of this. Um, but you know, looping back to that idea, and, and again, I have to say this with massive regard for people coming back to that idea that things work out. And again, from my own experience, when we come out from underneath the dark and we realize, okay, we can pick up from this and we can step on and we will be okay. Um, yeah, and I, I just think we do have to, we have to try and, and, uh, and believe that. Can we bring in gratitude a little bit? And again, you'll have to forgive me because I am pure bogan roots. Yep. So, uh, yeah. you know, I have a very, very basic outlook in terms of yeah. this thing. But can, yeah. can you talk about, and again, this maybe goes back to, you know, there's a whole lot of shit in life and, it, and you sometimes just have to work through, but then have the belief that or, yeah. or the trust that things are going to work out. But how yes. does, yes. can you talk about gratitude? Because it's oh, something that, that a it's, lot of it's one of my probably favourite things, apart from breathing. I just think that, and, and it's almost like it needs a new name. And I, I mean, that might be what comes out of this whole kind of era is that we're going to start bringing these things into our lives as really mainstream tools, but we might need to package them up differently. But the the fact is, when again, when when we are thankful for something. It changes our state. So there's a there's a bit of a challenge because when we're going through hard times, it can be the ver- the really hardest time to think about what's great. And people go, well, what do you what do you mean what's great? Look at what's going on. And it's like zero in, double down, find something that is good and think about it and have a moment of gratitude for it. Feel it and feel how it makes you feel different when you're thankful for that, and then take that lens to solve your problems. It's kind of like um, 
it kind of is, it is a little bit about changing our state again so that we feel more able to cope with the challenges. I, I had this interesting experience when um, my husband and I was many years ago, we started up a business and we hadn't, it wasn't reaching its potential where I think we were three to six months in and we'd set these benchmarks and we hadn't reached it. And I pulled in a business specialist who was a specialist in that field to kind of go through our problems and say, look, this is what we're facing. Can you help us with this, please? Because we need to be doing way better. And, and she said to me, okay, great. All right. Well, what's working so well? And I said, well, what? You, you're not listening. No, it's not working. Things are not working well. And that's why I kind of want you in here. And she goes, she sort of nodded and she said, so what's working so well? And it was like, oh, she was obviously trying to make a point. Can we please just focus on what's good? Let's look at what's good. And then let's turn our attention to solving the problems. And the two things that happened that I thought were of interest were, I couldn't think of anything good for a start. And there were plenty of things that were good, but my lens hadn't been on them. So I couldn't think of anything that was good. And then when I did, and when we were able to really, you know, look at what was working really well, we could leverage those things. And it gave us that kind of optimism to then go, okay, great. Now let's look at these hard things. And so that's kind of a bit of a long-winded story around how having an approach that focuses on what's working well, what you're grateful for, what is good, then helps us deal with the things that aren't. And I mean, you, you can apply it in a, in a context like that around business, around relationships, and you can apply it like I do every day. Like my husband gets frustrated when I get into bed and he's already got the light out and I'm writing in my gratitude journal just before I go to sleep. Because for me, it's a ritual that is a non-negotiable. And I've got stuff going on right now that's, that's tough in business. But every night I write down what I'm grateful for, just in bullet point form, just three to five things. And it just helps you go off to sleep going, sweet, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll deal with the rest tomorrow. Yeah. We're going to need to change the name, though, from gratitude. If we're going to pick up the bogans with this concept, <laughs> we need a, a new good name. Point. Well, maybe that's something you and I can do is we can rename all these things because, you know, what, what I want and uh, what, what I'll be working to achieve is my first job is to rebrand breathing. And I mean, I'm sorry for all the, you know, amazing academics around breathing. I'm doing it for you. <laughs> but I, I want us to have a, a vision or, or a picture that breathing and health are robust and rigorous and clinically sound, not that they're, you know, fluffy. Sorry to use that word as well. And then from there, I hope that we can start to say, oh, wow. So I thought that breathing was a little bit lightweight, but it turns out it's actually really fantastic. What are the other things that we need to look at? Because there's a few things, you know, our personal identity, who do we think of ourselves as, you know, how our be, who are we being? That to me is, could be a topic that sounds quite light and a bit out there, but it is not when we are very clear on our skills and attributes and who we want to step forward as, we can freaking own things. You know, we can own the challenges that we have. Like, like we've just discussed, when we understand the impact being grateful has and we start to realize that it's not something fluffy. Values are another thing. You know, when a human is aligned with what their true values are, man, we can do great things, but they're not, they're not 
they're not part of the formula at this point. They're kind of nice to haves or maybe we get to our stage in life and we say, wow, how can I find more meaning or more purpose? And we go off and search and we might find our values. We need to be knowing this way younger because there's a real sense of opportunity when we're aligned with what's great. Mm. Mm, yeah, so well, let's package it up. We'll change the name and we'll, we'll make it something more bogan. Yeah, we need, <laughs> we need like a Metallica, Metallica centric. <laughs> as, you, as you're talking about the gratitude thing, like it seems it makes so much sense though. Is that, how does that connect with the brain? Is that about what you're telling your subconscious? You know, if you're so focused on the negative stuff, your subconscious is taking that in and so it creates stuff. Yeah. Is that, it totally is, Andre, and it kind of it's interesting really how we kind of loop these things back and they come back to that sort of similar, that similar science again that says, mm. you know, a brain that is really feeling grateful actually can't worry at the same time. And that's just, you know, the way those two things, they, they, they can't. So, mm. yes, when, when, a, when a brain is thankful, and, and I say it as a brain because I like to imagine that here it is sitting next to us and we're just looking in at the mechanics and seeing how it needs to work. But, but a brain that's being thankful, that's looking for opportunity, as much as it's surrounded by challenges, will start to see opportunity. And it's almost like we see the weight shift. And, and, I, and I, I guess I could, I could say too that, you know, it might not seem like a magic silver bullet instantly. And if I think back to some of my hardest times when I was already in the practice of doing this, I had to write in my gratitude journal four times a day because I would write in the morning just to try and go, okay, cool, I've got this, I can get on with it. And within an hour, my thinking was clouded. I was worried again. And so rather than going, oh, shit, that doesn't work, I got out the notebook again and I wrote it down. My few things, I wrote it down and I reset and I kept going. And it was, you know, when you can't control the things that are happening, we have to turn to what we can control. And unfortunately, these things don't seem big enough. They don't seem complex enough to solve some of the complexities of our, of our problems. But I think that's the beauty in them, that if we truly start to value the state that a human's in when it breathes correctly, what happens to our thinking when we can turn positive or be thankful? What happens to how we show up when we're aligned with our values and there's always ways to make our work and our values align, we start to see that the formula isn't all the hard stuff. It's the easy stuff. Mm. So, you know, there's, um, I hope that that will become a new way. And, and the great thing too around that is none of that stuff takes a lot of time. It's really interesting to explore it and understand it in the beginning. But when we actually come to put it into practice, Breathing well, for example, we should be able to do it while we work. We don't just stop and sit outside and do a funny exercise. Writing in your gratitude journal or your notebook should just take a few minutes. This stuff changes our state and it's simple. Mm. Mm. Can you talk about values? Like how do, how do I know what values I have? Where do, where yeah, do you find do you know, yeah, they're, they're, the, um, they're a really interesting thing to explore for, for individuals. Um, and I think one of the common things we mistake is that values are 
things like morals and walking an elderly person across the road and things that are actually just community standards. You know, there's a difference. When, when we actually try to understand what our own personal values are, we might discover very different things. Like you might discover that you love a sense of enthusiasm or that you really you know everything is okay for you if you have a sense of serenity or security um, maybe it's that you feel your best when you're out running the streets because you have to exercise so we, we have to kind of have a look at it's a, it's a bit of an exercise around doing an audit almost on how are you feeling in your daily life right now? What's missing? What do you really rub up against that doesn't feel right? And instead of just blaming the situation and going, oh God, well, I don't like that person or I just mustn't like this job or whatever it might be, we've got to really have a think about what's in it? What's in that situation that I'm not feeling good about? Does it feel fake does it feel I, I'm, I'm unsure it's probably a bit of a something that almost needs a full day workshop um to to to, to realize but it's um yeah it's about we do have to take a moment and and a bit of time to think about what what mean what means what what means good stuff for me yeah mm. yeah and then and mm. then seeking I mean when I run through this with somebody I'll give you a sheet with over a hundred things on it and you circle all the ones that resonate you then break that down and you do it again and again till you come down to about five and you'll find those five and then you can look for evidence in them in your life and see where things are or aren't aligned. And sometimes what you find is that just because they're not apparent doesn't mean you can't inject that value into it if it's what you think is required to get a bit more satisfaction out of that area of your life. But it does, it's a bit of an exercise. Yeah, we need to do a workshop on it. Maybe we'll do that one day. <laughs> uh, I, I probably won't be able to articulate this in the... Uh, I know you well. will. I know you will. <laughs> But I sometimes wonder about that. I think I think you know it's so easy to get caught in a routine. Like there is a certain yeah. maybe this kind of social social yeah. values. Like there's there's certain kind of preconceived values that people have on like the definition of success. And yeah. so you kind of get yeah. caught up in that. Like you go to university, you, you go get a good job, and you then you yeah. you know you buy get some investments, you buy a house, yeah. all that sort of stuff. So you're working your way to that. Do people, do you find it quite common that people don't actually stop to think about what they actually want in life and what is important oh, incredibly for common. Incredibly common. And I think that there's this real um, disconnect um, with us where we're very externally motivated instead of internally inspired. And that might sound a little bit... Um, oh, out there but we, we're kind of taught certainly in our first world um, kind of way of living right now that we as you say let's get a degree let's get a job let's buy a house all these things that are quite superficial but externally measured things and they're great to achieve and I and I think that they're wonderful that we should want those sorts of things if that's what we describe that we do but they should not be our measure of success or happiness that's got to come from values-based, intrinsic, inspiring things. And when you can marry up the two, then you'll feel like a more satisfied person. Because, you know, like, like we've said, a lot of what's happened this year has been outside of our control. We can't do anything about it. And if the life we've built has been only built on these external measures and they break down, we're left with nothing. 
Mm. But if we've always worked around what is our identity, how do we define ourselves, what is truly important, then that's what's left when everything breaks down and you've got something to build from. And mm. again, that, that might sound a little bit um, hard to gather at the, at the first when we first start talking about it, but it's really key. And, and yes, to your question, it's incredibly common that we don't do that. And it's often only by us going through these really hard times that in desperate times we go, oh my gosh, I need a, I need a, this has to be different. And so we start to learn later in life about some of those things. And, and then it and then it can be of benefit to us. But yeah, most of us, Andre, aren't being taught that. When you yeah, started when, when you started going through this process for yourself and started breaking down some of those external yeah. metrics and really looking at what was important to you, were you surprised? Yeah. Were you surprised by what you found? Um, I wasn't necessarily surprised, but I think what my experience was, was, oh, yeah, I know the values piece. I know it's meant to be really important, but I still want to get all this other stuff. So I'm going to focus on this other stuff. And actually, I do have a recollection of probably an example around that where I tested myself because this was probably about 15 or more years ago now. I was just starting in another business and... I had this amazing set of corporate clients again. And one of them, one of my first big ones, had invited me to this conference overseas. And I had to, no, over in Waikiki and over at their conference. And I was so excited to go. And on the morning that I was due to go, my little son was sick. And I was like, oh, I've just done my values. And I've kind of looked at it all. And my children are my number one. And I was thinking, oh, he's only two. I could just send him to kindy and no one would really know and I'll get on the ferry and go to Waiheke and do this conference. So I checked in with my values and I was like, no, it's not going to work. I'm going to have to ring and say I can't come because I'm staying home with my sick boy. And so it was with a really heavy heart that I thought, damn, I was just looking forward. It was just starting to happen. And I rang them. I said, look, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to make it to the event today. My son's sick. And what it was almost like this little test where the universe kind of went, go on, do it, do it, show your true values. And, and they said, don't worry, come over on the third day. We'll reschedule you. So it was kind of like this little reward that I had truly lived by my value. I'd been prepared to say no to this great piece of business and stay at home with my little boy. And it actually turned out okay. And it doesn't always turn out okay. But what we realize is that as soon as I made the call and said I can't make it because my son's sick, I felt a relief. And I think that's what we learn is that when we have the courage to make some decisions that do align with our values, things start to feel right. And that's a real organic kind of gradual process as well that takes a bit of courage. But when you do something with courage, you get stronger. So, and then in that, you then are able to deal with other more challenging things. So it becomes this kind of really neat, evolving situation where we're stronger. <laughs> yeah. So it's been interesting. Mm-hmm. And speaking of interesting, this has been a fascinating conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. Thank you very I much. I always love talking to you, Andre. Always love talking to you. So thank you. Yeah, thank it's you. great. Um, one last question. And I'll get you, so you know, because I, sometimes I need some help with, with my job. But um, yeah. for, the, for the next person that I interview, uh, yeah. what's a question you'd like to throw in there? Oh, wow. Who will it be? I don't that's know. I don't know. 
Mm. Wow, you've got me there. Actually, I think someone from the tech industry, someone who's very successful, made a lot of money, has all of those external metrics. Yeah. I mean, I I just would love because it's, um, I'd love them to know if they breathe well. (laughs) I would. I'd love them. And they'll go, what? What do you mean? Yeah. (laughs) That's what I'd love. Let me know. (laughs) And if they they don't, then, then tell them. Tell them about breathing. Tell them that when we breathe well into our tummy all the time while we work, we become mm. healthier. Mm. And speaking of that, can um, do you want people to find you? By the way, can they can they look oh, you up and yeah. ask you to help them? They totally can. The only thing is where they find me now is at takeabreath.world. And it's probably a website. If they jumped on, they'd see what we're all about, but they might not see me. But if yeah. you press the contact button, you'll get through to me. Yeah. So takeabreath.world is, um, is where we're at, yeah. 